program is for a mature audience and may contain detailed descriptions of violence. Discretion is advised. The Radiant Citadel is a miracle of architecture. A floating city carved out of a single gargantuan fossil that snakes around a colossal gemstone shard known as the Auroral Diamond. The luminescence of this diamond is mirrored in the constellation of 15 structure-sized gemstones known as the Concord Jewels, which orbit the city and provide transportation to the far-flung homes of the Citadel's founding civilizations. The Radiant Citadel a gathering place of strangers and stories. The ancient writing of Allura Atheri. Spoiler warning, before you watch the following program, please be aware that this program makes use of Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel, published by Wizards of the Coast in 2022. Date, 24 Chess, 1495DR Time, 7.27pm Party status Luvia, 12 hit points Venifer, 8 hit points Rowan, 7 hit points The party were hired by a middle-aged merchant named Chon to escort a community of wagons to the Dinsing Night Market and seek out a rare treasure available only there. As the party were exploring the market, a young kobold fleeing with onions was caught by a gnome woman. The pair squabbled over them until the kobold's mother appeared to defend her son. Both the kobolds and the gnome believed the onions were theirs and were stolen by the other vendor. The party broke up the argument and without taking sides agreed to investigate the shopkeeper's stands and the surrounding market to uncover whether one of the vendors is sabotaging the other. Following this agreement, the party was approached by another vendor, Kasim Arun. The party, pretending to be members of the Merchants Guild who oversee market conduct, asked Kasim if he knew anything about sabotage in the market. He appeared to change the subject, but Rowan pressed him further for an answer. The Spicy Brothers are in a promising position. I personally would have no need to sabotage anybody. I'm sorry I can't be of further service to you, says Kasim, and with a bow, he dismisses himself. Have a delightful evening. Rowan will perform a Wisdom Insight check to determine whether Kasim is telling the truth. He has a plus six bonus to this role. Only 12 altogether. To Rowan, Kasim seems a little shady, but it's not very clear whether he is hiding something or not. Perhaps time will tell. As Kasim walks away, Rowan stares after him with narrowed eyes and slight scowl, deep in thought, but without revelation. The party begins to explore the market further. 
they make their way through the southeastern jumble of market stalls, which like all the rest, spiral around the event grounds in a sunken plaza at the very centre of the market, which forms a large circle. It's as though the stalls, of all shapes and sizes, orbit the larger central tents like a planetary system. Before I continue with the story, now is a great time to announce the winner of my recent Halloween competition, also celebrating my 3,000 subscriber milestone. The competition was announced in my previous episode. I asked friends of the show to submit a write-up for a creepy Halloween-themed market stall, complete with a vendor. I'm pleased to announce the winner is Stratplayer05 for his submission entitled Disguised Blessings details of which are about to follow. One establishment catches the party's eyes, a ramshackle barn that looks out of place, even amidst the diversity of the wider market. This place seems much more permanent, with its serene garden of manicured alleyweeds and gutter moss no less. The juxtaposition is strangely alluring. The lower floor of the barn is barren, save for a few cobwebs and a single greasy sputtering lantern. A rickety ladder leads up to the structure's partial second level, for the rest of it has collapsed away. One by one, the party ascends the ladder, which is surprisingly sturdy. Atop, Beneath a sign depicting an anguished princess crying tears of diamonds into an ornate chest, sits a hooded figure in robes of sable and lavender hues. Just curious, what have you got up your ladder? Venifer asks. My collection of wares. The hooded figure speaks in a voice somehow booming, yet soft, none of which are cursed. People travel from all the founding civilizations to seek my blessed, enchanted items. Can we see some of them? Asks Luvia. Of course. I have just the thing for you. The hooded figure, despite being a considerable size, nimbly floats to the back of the room without so much as causing the barn's old boards to creak. He disappears into the blackest of shadows and re-emerges a moment later with a large silver sabre. This is the drowsy sword. The creature explains, a saturnine sabre of silvered steel. Not cursed. He brushes his hand up the blade delicately. The wielder may cast a sleep spell once per day and may strike an enemy with greater precision. Blessed and enchanted. If you look at it the right way. It looks a little out of my price range, says Luvia. Without response, the hooded figure ducks back into shadow and silence, and then re-emerges once again. Exhumed legumes? He asks. Excuse me? Responds Venifer. The hooded figure holds out a small bag of delicate cloth, which faintly buzzes with magical energy. If eaten, the creature says, one legume will sufficiently satisfy hunger for one week. Not cursed but blessed and enchanted like all my wares. Why did you call it an exhumed legume? Questions Rowan. They were previously planted and then dug up 
after a high altitude mishap. Oh, Rowan responds with a series of blinks. The characters seem quite mesmerised by the items they have seen so far, and despite the peculiar vendor and his creeping behaviour, they somehow feel trust for him, rightly or wrongly. Look, I'm not sure we are your target consumer. Luvia breaks a long moment of silence and attempts to break the party's spellbound circumstance. Between us, we have about ten gold pieces. That doesn't sound like it will get us very far, unless you have something more in that price range. Luvia will perform a charisma check. She rolls a five. The exhumed legumes are 250 pieces of gold. I regret that I am unable to go lower. Perhaps we can do business some other time. And with that, the spell is broken and the creature turns and begins to glide into the shadows to be reabsorbed. The party feel a sense of relief as they make their way back towards the three golden tents in the central sunken plaza. A brightly coloured sign reading Vardas of the World the Goods catches their gaze this time, and the pleasantly sweet pastry smell that comes with it even more inviting. Amongst these expertly crafted pastries and desserts, at centre stage sits a large delicately decorated bun curled like a coiled snake, with a large blob of yellow at the centre, surrounded by a white dusting of coconut. This was it. This was the rare item that Chon was looking for. Stay tuned to find out what happens next. Twenty-three chess, fourteen ninety-five dr. Luvia relaxed on a large rock on Pearl Beach, gazing out at the Lynx River as it flowed by. They watched fishermen from the nearby villages casting their nets, other villages washing clothing along the shore, with their children playing happily nearby, splashing and skimming stones despite the briskness of the early spring morning. Behind Luvia, a burst of hearty song announced a presence. A stout voice followed. Fine morning for it. Luvia turned, recognising the old grey-bearded halfling wearing a comical triangular blue striped hat and a dirty coat. Just like Luvia, the old halfling was travelling along with the wagons towards the Dinsing Night Market. Luvia nodded in agreement with the halfling. Fen's the name. The halfling offered a hand to shake. Then stout bow, Luvia took it hesitantly. The sky was suddenly overcast, strengthening the chill in the air. So Chorn's cut you in, has he? How big was the slice? Fen said. That's between me and Chon. See, that's where you're wrong, sweet. We have a lot of mouths to feed in this community, and we'd have been just fine without the extra mouths. Then talk to Chon. That's not my problem. Tell you what, I offer you this. Fen reached into his coat and pulled out a pipe, which seemed fairly mundane at first, but as the clouds began to disperse again, a ray of light touched the pipe. Its beautifully polished brass shined perfectly. Diamonds decorating its length shined brighter still. 
Well-defined draconic symbols circled the mouthpiece. This little relic here was made by an air archon. Take your companions, be on your way, and you can have this. It's worth more than a few crumbs. I have to have it, Luvia thought, and wrestled internally over the urge to reach out and snatch it up without question. But something else occurred to them. Why is getting rid of us so important? that it would be worth more than this valuable artefact. Luvia rose to their feet, looked Fen directly in the eye and spoke. I'm not going anywhere. And with that, Luvia took their leave of the old halfling and made their way back to the village to prepare for the journey to the Dinsing Night Market. been asked on several occasions how I play pre-published adventures solo. I'm going to explain some of the rules I use here. The key to running pre-published adventures is to master the art of switching perspectives. I covered this in more detail in Tales of Mistara, The Palace of Evendur, Episode 2, and also in an article published on my blog. In summary, sometimes in your solo game, you will want to switch from being the player to being the dungeon master. This will aid you in the task of running pre-published adventures without ruining the element of surprise. The main goal when doing this is to try to avoid metagaming wherever possible. A really basic example of this is deciding which direction the party will take when several options are presented. A simple roll of the die can be used with each side representing a different cardinal direction. For example, a d4 halved for two directions, d6 halved for three directions, d4 for four directions, d10 halved for five, d6 for six, and so on. I'll cover a few more of the basics, which are mainly applicable to old school rules but can largely be adapted to modern fantasy RPGs. Decide on a marching order so it's easy to establish where each character is positioned during each encounter. Draw a map as the party progresses so you have a good idea of what the party knows about the layout of the area and what they don't know. Read the adventure text that describes each location carefully. If a feature has additional details which can be gained only by examining it further, then there is a 10% chance cumulative for each character that they will examine the features more closely. So that's 40% for four characters. If the adventure text indicates a trap, roll to determine if a check for traps is made. I covered this previously on my blog and episode 2 of Tales of Mistara, The Palace of Evendur. The roll is 1d10 plus the character's level plus or minus the character's intelligence bonus. This check should be made by the most suitable character, i.e. a thief or rogue, and can only be made by another character if the most suitable class is not in the party. If this is the case, then the most suitable character should be chosen based on their individual abilities and expertise. Another good tip is to assign each character a number if you ever need to randomly determine a character. With these few basics out of the way, I'll cover some other approaches I like to use for playing pre-published adventures. 
These methods mainly focus on fantasy role-playing games which use a D20 system or similar. However, some of this information will also be applicable to games which predate this system. A more complex problem is what to do when your party is exploring a particular location. The adventure text will describe the features of the area and you may be tempted to take a specific course of action based on the best outcome. This is a very strong example of the kind of metagaming we are trying to avoid. In order to avoid this kind of metagaming, I have a table of common character actions which I roll on to determine what characters do. I also covered this in Tales of Mistara, The Palace of Evendor, Episode 2, and in a previous blog article. We can easily apply this method to a pre-published adventure by rolling on the table and then with our DM hat on, reviewing the adventure text to interpret what the outcome of the action would be in the context of the location and its features. This involves a bit more of imaginative interpretation to find a best fit. I'd always advise in these situations to apply a mix of logic and the path of least resistance. One other common stumbling block when trying to avoid metagaming when playing a pre-published adventure is when the adventure text indicates that a character may perform some kind of skill or ability check. In any edition of D&D published within the last 20-something years, including 3rd edition, 5e, 1D&D and also other modern games based on the D20 system, a roll of a 20-sided die is often compared against a target number to determine success or failure of an action. This mechanic is usually applied to skill and ability checks. This is particularly potent in pre-published adventures, even ones which predate the D20 system. When playing solo, there are various ways to adapt this D20-based approach into a great solo game mechanic. If the adventure text includes the opportunity for a player to roll a specific skill or ability check, first you must determine whether any of the characters will think to do so. This is one way to avoid metagaming. A player in a group game will not necessarily think to perform a particular check, so we want to reflect this in our solo games. Determination of whether a character will perform this check is similar to examples I gave in a previous article on my blog concerning traps and noise. I also covered this in episode 1 of Tales of Mistara, The Palace of Evandur. The procedure is as follows, roll a d10. The chance of performing the check is equal to 1, plus a character's level, plus or minus a character's intelligence bonus. You could perform this check for each character in the party, or limit the check to characters who are proficient in the skill, if you use skill proficiencies in your game. For straight ability checks, you could only allow characters a chance to perform the check if they are at least average in their scores, i.e. have a score of 9 to 12. I'm still experimenting with this mechanic, so I have no hard and fast rules just yet. The chance to perform a skill or ability check will always be the same for a character until they level up. So you could include an extra space on the character sheet to record each character's chance for skill or ability check. A further problem when rolling dice checks is how to set a target number or difficulty class if it is not already set in the adventure text. A table of typical difficulty class can be used for this. These tables appear in various editions of the Dungeon Master's Guide, and there is even one included in the third playtesting article for 1D&D. If you'd like to know more about how I run my solo games, 
please visit solodungeoncrawler.blogspot.com or follow me on Twitter at CrawlerSolo. You may have noticed that this campaign started as audio only. Good news, I'm now making video versions of all my campaigns. I hope you'll follow all of them to get the most out of my fictional multiverse. From time to time, I throw in some solo role-playing tips which could help your game, so it's worth the journey. Regarding this campaign, which utilises the 1D&D rules in playtesting, at the time of recording, Wizards of the Coast has now published three articles presenting new material for 1D&D. The rules glossary in each article supersedes the rules glossary in the articles that came before. Some main changes to note since I started this campaign are firstly, that each character class belongs to a class group. Bards, rangers and rogues, covered in the second article, belong to the experts group. Sorcerers, warlocks and wizards belong to the mages group. Clerics, druids and paladins belong to the priests group. And finally, barbarians, fighters and monks belong to the warriors group. Secondly, character races have been swapped out for character species. I guess this is an attempt to steer away from the implications of focusing on race. Interestingly, if I cast my mind back to the original Dungeons and Dragons, this too did not utilise race, but only class. For example, demi-humans such as dwarves, halflings and elves were classes and the term race was simply not used. OD&D also did not include law for the various classes and monsters. This was left to the DM to craft. So by default, it avoided the controversy of cultural or racial parallels, similar to what Wizards of the Coast have been trying to do with 5e and 1D&D. I presume, on Gygax and Arneson's part, this was not the intention with OD&D, but was just the way it was. An interesting parallel all the same. In regards to changes of game mechanics, as and when they are applicable, I'll cover them in detail in game. Now, back to the game. So far, on episode 2 of Radiant Light, after interrogating Kasim Arun, who insisted he knew nothing about sabotage in the Dinsing Night Market, the party was unclear on whether Kasim was telling the truth or telling lies. Following their discussion with Kasim, the party discovered a ramshackle barn in the southeastern part of the market. There they met a shrouded figure selling enchanted items beyond their price range. After making their way back towards the central plaza, they found Varda's otherworldly goods. In pride of place, this vendor had a large delicately decorated bun, curled like a coiled snake, with a large blob of yellow at the centre, surrounded by a white dusting of coconut. This was the rare item that Chon, the middle-aged merchant who hired the party, was looking for. handle this one, Venifer, says Luvia, and Venifer returns a scandalised expression. Luvia turns to the vendor, 
a halfling woman wearing a shiny gold circlet etched with elven runes. I really love your circlet. It's beautiful, Luvia says to the vendor. I consider myself a pretty good judge of character, and you strike me as quite an important person, a real influencer. I'm Luvia. They offer their hand to the vendor to shake. <laughs> I think you need to brush up on your acting. Your little performance there, with the pretend flattery, a little too much. Luvia stammers in response, unable to find any more words. Don't act so offended. I'm only pulling your leg. But be warned, that kind of sweet talk doesn't convince old Varda. I've been around too long. If I tell you your pastries and desserts look like the finest I've ever seen, will you believe me? Varda waves her hand dismissively at this remark. Just then, a large crash can be heard somewhere on the western side of the market. As the party turns toward the source of the sound, they notice a fire below the Zungun family seafood stall. The source of the crash was the stall's right leg collapsing. Kuza throws a bucket of water onto the fire to put it out, cursing heavily as she does so. Rowan shakes his head in disbelief, and Venifer throws her hands up in surrender. If you ask me, Varda, Venifer says, that was no accident. I don't know what you're talking about. Varda responds, I didn't see anything. Have you ever met a man who goes by the name of Fen Stoutbarrel? Asks Luvia. Uh, no. Us vendors keep ourselves to ourselves. Whilst conversation is taking place, Rowan inspects the vendor's space to see if he can see anything unusual. He will make an intelligence investigation check. He doesn't notice anything suspicious. You're being a tad evasive if you ask me says Rowan, losing his patience with the woman. I think it's appropriate for Rowan to make a charisma intimidation check here. He has a plus three bonus to this role. Despite the look of discomfort and fear, Varda swallows the emotions down hard. Market business isn't for outsiders, she says. We keep ourselves to ourselves, but I'm not looking to cause any trouble. As you can see, there's been a lot of disturbances at the Tienmo and Zungun businesses. It's causing quite the commotion. You know, I think my son would absolutely love one of those chocolate buns. Can I buy one, please? Venifer says, with a bright smile in an attempt to calm the atmosphere. One silver piece, says Varda, holding out a hand. Venifer hands over a gold piece and receives nine silver pieces change and a small chocolate cupcake. As Varda is moving to serve Venifer, Rowan takes the opportunity to take a better look behind where the halfling vendor was standing. Once again, he notices nothing strange. He rubs his beard thoughtfully, reaches into his robe, takes out a small book and begins to flick through its pages. I think we should look around. The Dinsing Night Market Games are prestigious events interrupts Rowan before Luvia can finish her sentence. Held at the market centre. Winners are temporary minor celebrities throughout the market. Perhaps if we win a few games, we might get treated with a bit more trust and respect around here. As Rowan is explaining this, Varda cries out in alarm. My vanilla buns! 
the party turns towards the commotion to see an empty spot at the back of the stall that held two dozen of the signature buns just moments ago. Fada points to a thin trail of powdered sugar leading directly to Tienmo Noodle Bowl. Venifer signals the party to move and they all rush towards Tienmo Noodles. Lamai, Luvia says to the vendor. Do you have an explanation as to why half a dozen vanilla buns are missing? This trail of sugar leads directly to your stall. I would never steal from another vendor, the gnome woman says angrily. You do me a great dishonour. What I have, I share freely. And I don't take what does not belong to me. I can't think of a better explanation, presses Rowan. I won't take this harassment, Lamai says with a stubborn expression, arms folded and dark wild hair hanging over her knitted brow. The sound of a large gong suddenly cuts through the din of the market, stopping any further conversation in its tracks. The gong is followed by a loud voice which bellows. The games are about to begin. These sounds are coming from the central tents, the event grounds for the market games. All participants must make their way to the event grounds immediately. The party make their way over to the southwestern event tent. A human, garbed in a garish red and green uniform, approaches and outlines the rules. The game works as follows. You will sit at a table with a basket of mixed peppers and several pitchers of milk. The game has three rounds. Participants must select one pepper from the basket and eat it. Any participant who eats a pepper without reaching for milk or leaving the table until the three rounds are over is declared a winner. Neither violence nor magic are permitted during the competition. Do you agree to obey these rules? We do, answers Venifer. Then I will ask you to wait just a few moments for the event to begin. The characters are the only contestants in the competition, and after a short wait, they are escorted into the main area of the tent. A crowd applauds from nearby bleachers as they're led into the broad, open space of the event tent. Before them is a square table bearing a massive basket of colourful peppers and several pitchers of milk. Welcome, challengers, to the Arun Family Pepper Challenge, shouts a bombastic announcer standing near the table and wearing a red pepper-themed costume. I'm your host, V. Arun. Is everybody ready to greet the heat? <laughs> <laughs>